again. Thank you, William. If you have your copy of God's Word, I hope and pray you do. Turn with me to uh, Revelation chapter 9. Uh, we're going to finish chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 13 through 21 this morning, the sixth trumpet uh, judgment. And so um, uh, we're looking forward to that. If you're a guest of ours, we're studying through Revelation together on Sunday morning. And so this is where we are today. Uh, Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 through 21. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, there's one there in the pew in front of you, pew rack in front of you, and you can find uh, Revelation 9 on page 1061, and you are more than welcome uh, to use that Bible. And I would also say, if you don't have a copy of God's Word at home, you're more than welcome to take that one with you. Uh, That's why it's there, uh, and let that be your uh, copy of God's Word to study and to grow from, all right? Uh, Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. Let's read that together, and then we'll dive in. God's Word says to us, The sixth angel blew his trumpet. From the four horns of the golden altar that is before God, I heard a voice say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of the human race. The number of mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. This is how I saw the horses and their riders in the vision. They had breastplates that were fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and from their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of the human race was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur that came from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their uh, their mouths and in their tails, because their tails, which resemble snakes, have heads that inflict injury. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their theft. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this opportunity you've given us to gather as the body of Christ, to come together and to sing your praises, and to encourage one another in our faith, and to encourage one another uh, in the journey you have for us. And Lord, now as we have opened your word, as we begin to dive into it and begin to study it together, Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord. Soften our hearts to truth. Open our minds to just hear and to see you and and to listen to what you have to say to us, Lord. And most importantly, be glorified, magnified, and exalted in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so how did we get here to the sixth trumpet? Just real quick, just real real quick recap. Beginning in chapter 6, we saw the first seal opened, the first of, of, of God's judgments. There are seven seals, and then there are seven trumpet judgments, and then we'll get into the seven bold judgments. And so, with the first seal, when it was opened, we saw false peace upon the earth. And then the second seal, we saw war. And then the third seal, we saw economic disaster. And in the fourth seal, we, we saw death like never before. And with the fifth seal, we saw uh, just this, this unparalleled 
martyrdom of Christians since the founding of the church. And then the sixth seal, we saw all these things begin to happen in the heavens and in the skies and with the mountains and the volcanoes and the islands of the earth. And then in chapter 7 was the first of, of, a, of a few interludes in Revelation. And we saw where there are 144,000 Jews who will come to know um, Christ as their personal Lord and Savior during the tribulation. And from there, there will be a great multitude, um, John wrote, which no one could number from every nation, tribe, people, and language that will come to know Christ as Savior. And then we came to chapter 8, and we began to see the unfolding of the seventh seal, which is the revelation of the trumpet judgment. In the first trumpet judgment, we saw just this devastation of the land, of the earth, of everything green. And then with the second trumpet, we saw this adverse effect in the seas, the, the saltwater seas of the earth. And then with the third trumpet, we saw the freshwater sources of water, a third of them uh, damaged and destroyed. Uh, and then with the fourth trumpet, we saw the, a third of the celestial bodies fall from heaven, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And then, two weeks ago, with the fifth trumpet, we began to see a transition take place with God's judgment. For everything up until this point affected the natural world, and beginning with the fifth trumpet, now the human race is affected. And with that fifth trumpet, if you'll recall, for five months, the unbelieving population, those who do not have God's seal on their foreheads, were tormented extreme pain and anguish for five months, so much so that verse 6 says they longed to die, they, they prayed for death, they sought death, and yet it eluded them. And now we come to the sixth trumpet, and the judgment upon the human race gets even more severe and more catastrophic. And so let's kind of dive into this uh, together this morning. If you have your notes there, you'll see the kind of three main points, and then some teaching points that I just want you to leave here with today, knowing and understanding about these texts. In verses 13 and 14, here's the first thing we see, the relief of the army of demons. And here's what we read. The sixth angel blew his trumpet. From the four horns of the golden altar that is before God, I heard a voice say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. And so as the sixth angel blows his trumpet, John hears a voice. He hears a single solitary voice. And he is before the golden altar that is in front of the throne of God. Now remember, this altar in both the tabernacle, the, 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 the temporary tent of meeting, the place of God's dwelling, the place of worship during the Exodus, and then later in the temple, that this altar was a place where incense was burned. And that incense was um, symbolized the prayers of God's people rising to the throne of God, seeking His mercy and His grace and His kindness and His compassion. In the book of Revelation, John shows us this golden altar again as a place of intercession. In chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we saw where it was the place where the martyred saints were pleading with God for vengeance and justice against those who had murdered them. In chapter 8, 
In verse 5, we see it as a place of judgment where the angel took that golden censer and at that altar he, he filled it um, with, with, with fire from that altar and he hurled it to the earth in judgment. Now, the voice coming from this altar, the voice coming from heaven here uh, is not identified. And so it may be the Lord Jesus, it may be the voice of an angel standing near this golden altar. We're not told, but, but John hears this voice. And this, this voice makes a command. And he commands that the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates be released. Now, who are these angels and, and what are they for? Well, um, the fact that these angels are bound gives us a, a really good insight that, that most likely they are just wicked demons. The Bible tells us that God has bound some of those wicked demons for such a time as this. In Second Peter 2 and verse 4, here's what we read. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. Just as a reminder, okay? Uh, sometime long ago before creation uh, in heaven, uh, Lucifer, who we know as Satan, along with a large population of those angels rebelled against God. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to be worshipped like God. And they were expelled from heaven. And so now these demonic angels, at least some of them have been chained until that moment that they've been kept for. In Jude chapter 6, we read this. And the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. So, so why do I share that with you? Why is it important that we understand this? Because the fact that these angels are bound tells us that these are not holy angels. These are not angels who do and follow and obey the will of God. They're bound because they, they, their, their purpose is contrary to the will of God. They're bound because they are standing in opposition to God and the things of God. But on this occasion, at the Lord's command, they will be released from that bondage for a purpose. And we'll see that in just a moment. Now, it's interesting because verse 14 mentions the great river Euphrates. Why, do, why does Scripture mention the Euphrates River? Well, uh, the Euphrates River figures prominently in the Old Testament. And it figures prominently in the history of Israel. Uh, let me just share with you a few, a few uh, of the places where we see the Euphrates River mentioned and how it plays a prominent role. Number one, the Euphrates River was one of the four rivers that the river flowed out of the Garden of Eden and divided into. Okay, so we'll go back and look in Genesis. The first sin, the first lie, and the first murder all occurred near the Euphrates River. The Tower of Babel was built near the Euphrates River. Here's something quite interesting. The eastern boundary of the land God promised Israel was the Euphrates River. Now, if you know anything about geography and uh, world politics, you know that right now Israel doesn't occupy anywhere near the amount of land that God promised them. Their land extends all the way in the parts of Jordan and Syria and Saudi Arabia and Iraq all the way over to the Euphrates River. That's the land that God promised them. 
And if I understand Scripture correctly, there will be a day when they occupy that land. The area of the Euphrates River was uh, was the central location of the three world powers that largely opposed Israel, Assyria, Babylon, and then the Persian Empire later. It's the river the enemies of God will cross in Revelation 16 to engage in the battle of Armageddon. And so it plays a prominent role. And so these angels are bound there at that great river Euphrates, and then they are released. They are uh, sent on their mission. So what do we need to understand about this? Look with me here in your notes. Here's kind of what I want you to, to take away this morning. This demonic army, thinking they are thwarting the purposes of God, are actually God's servants carrying out His will. We're reminded of a great truth this morning, okay? And be encouraged by this. Satan and his demons are not all-knowing, and they're not all-powerful, and they're not everywhere present, all right? They are still subordinate, and they still submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember in the Gospels, every time Christ encountered a demon, what was the result? Number one, they called Christ by name, and number two, they did exactly what He said to do. So they are subordinate to Him. They submit to His authority, and in this occasion, He is going to unleash them for a purpose. And that brings me to verse 15. Let's look at the mission of the army of demons. Here's what we read again. So the four angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of the human race. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses and their riders in the vision. They had breastplates that were fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and from their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of the human race was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur that came from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, because their tails, which resemble snakes, have heads that inflict in injury. Now, with the fifth trumpet, death had kind of taken a break. It had taken a hiatus. With the sixth trumpet, death returns, and it returns with a vengeance. The purpose of this vast army of demons, and John tells us they're 200 million strong, the purpose of this army is to kill a third of the human race. Now remember, we talked a little bit about this two weeks ago. What, what is the whole purpose and mission of Satan from John chapter 10? Jesus said it is to steal, kill, and destroy. And this, so, so this army of demons comes just to fulfill the grand purpose that Satan has for us. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Now here's what's so interesting. If you paid attention to the details, in chapter 6 and verses 7 and 8 with the fourth seal, if you'll remember, we saw a fourth of the human race killed. So at the beginning of this trumpet, there's only 75% of the original population alive. And with this trumpet judgment, and a, another third of the human race is killed, that brings the total death toll to over 50% of the pre-tribulation population. Now, if we use today's numbers of 8 billion, okay, just as a place to start, that means with the sixth trumpet, there will be fewer than 4 billion people remaining on planet Earth. 
And that doesn't include those who died in the other field in trumpet judgment. Now, how do we know um, that this is a supernatural army rather than a human army? Well, the figurative language used to describe this army and the horses and the language used here, the fact that they're led by demonic angels, um, gives us great indication that this is not a human army. We're going to see a human army in a few chapters, that this is a demonic army that has come to render judgment against the unbelieving world. At this occasion, there's no reason for us to believe this is a, this is a human army. Now, why do we see this army riding horses? Because horses are used throughout Scripture in warfare, in, in situations of warfare. And so John wants us to know and understand that, this, that, this, that they're coming to bring war. They're coming to bring destruction. And then the adjectives that are used here, okay? Heads of lions, fire and smoke and sulfur coming from their mouths, tails that, that sting and inflict injury, the colors of fiery red and dark blue and sulfurous yellow. Those are the colors. Those, those are the, the features of hell that we see in other passages of Scripture. And so you and I, just the, the, these images just describe this supernatural, this deadly power of this demonic force that will come upon the earth. So what do you and I need to understand from verses 15 uh, through 19? What, 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 is, what is the takeaway for us? Here it is. Look with me in your notes. With this judgment, God is upholding His holy law and He is vindicating His suffering people. Remember as you read, particularly through the Old Testament, God's people plead with God over and over and over. God, when are you going to bring justice on our enemies? When are you going to bring vengeance on those who are opposed to us? You see it in the Psalms. You see it in the Proverbs. In the other wisdom literature, you see it in the prophets. God's people are pleading for justice. Justice is coming. And it comes with a vengeance with the, with the sixth trumpet. Now, look with me at verses 20 and 21. For this is two of the most heartbreaking verses in all of God's Word. For we see the reaction of sinful humanity. Look what we read here. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their theft. How heartbreaking that they did not repent. I've often thought to myself, maybe you've asked yourself this question, how could anyone living in the land of Israel 2,000 years ago, during the time of Christ, how could anyone who was alive in that day and, and in that region of the world, um, witnessing the miracles that Jesus accomplished, listening to the lessons He taught, watching the life that He modeled, how could anyone not have, uh, have placed their faith and trust in Him? How could anyone not have just surrendered to Christ and began to follow Him? Did you ever ask yourself that question? 
And the only answer to that question is simply this, the hardness of the human heart. The, 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 the depth of human depravity is the only answer to the question. Right? Can you imagine if you were in the crowd that day and Lazarus, uh, Jesus was standing, standing outside the tomb of Lazarus and He calls His name to come out. You would think at that moment you would bow down to Jesus and begin to acknowledge Him and worship Him as Savior and Lord. Or how about when Jesus just appeared after His resurrection, risen from the dead, you would think. And yet, by, by and large, the multitudes rejected Him. In a similar way, how could anyone during the end times not repent of their sin and surrender in faith to Jesus Christ? Think about this. They have witnessed years of suffering and death under the terrifying judgment of God. They've heard the powerful preaching of the gospel from the 144,000 Jewish evangelists and, and other believers. And yet, we're told here they remain stubborn and obstinate, refusing to repent of their sin and surrender in faith to Jesus Christ. And again, the only answer to this phenomenon is the hardness of the human heart, the depth of human depravity. That's the only answer we can find as to why anyone would not repent and say yes to Jesus. The language implies the opportunity is available. They have the opportunity to say yes to Jesus, and yet they choose not to. And as John concludes his vision of this sixth trumpet, he lists for us five sins that represent the hardness of the human heart, the depravity of humanity. Five sins that will be prominent during these days. And that's quite striking because they're prominent today. <laughs> and yet, we understand they're going to be even more prominent during the end times. And let's just take a look at those real quick. Look with me in verse 20. Here's what we're told. That the first thing is they're engaged in idolatry or demon worship. He says they did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. Ever since the fall of man, uh, the fall, man has made it a practice to worship idols. The works of our hands, the result of our imagination. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that when we engage in idol worship, we are in fact engaging in the worship of demons. It's quite interesting, we are told throughout Scripture, but particularly here, that these demons can neither see, hear, or walk. They can't think, they can't respond, they can't act. They are inanimate objects. They are, we see spiritually dead sinners worshiping dead gods. Now, when you and I talk about idol worship, for many of us, that is kind of a foreign concept, right? But, but let me tell you, many parts of the world today are still engaged in idol worship. They're still worshiping creations of their minds and imaginations. I've seen it in India. And it's, a, it's, it's an incredibly depressing thing to watch a human being bow to a, to a man-made object. My daughter just 
Got back from Southeast Asia and she witnessed it all summer. Men and women, grown men and women, educated men and women, bowing and worshiping at, at man-made objects. For us in our culture, it's a foreign concept. But yet we do the very same thing. In our developed country, we may not worship an object that we have formed in fashion of our own mind and our own hands, but, but we worship money. And we worship fame. And we worship power. And we worship prominence. And we worship success. And we worship education and other things. We, we, we worship idols just like those in undeveloped countries do. They just look a little bit different. And let me remind all of us this morning that anything in our life that is more important to us than our relationship with the one true God and His Son, Jesus Christ, is an idol. Whether that idol is made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, or wood, or whether it's an idol of money and fame and material possession and prominence and education and, and, and so forth and so on. Regardless, if there's anything in your life or my life that is more important than our relationship with the one true God and His Son, Jesus Christ, it's an idol. And God says eliminate that. that that's the, command, the first commandment. The second thing that John sees here he says they did not repent. In verse 21, they did not repent of their murders. Life will be void of any moral boundaries during the tribulation. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, it's hard for me to imagine how it's going to be more so uh, void of boundaries than it is today, but it'll even be worse than today, and, and violent crime like murder will be rampant. It'll, it'll be commonplace during the end of the day. The next thing he says, and this is quite an interesting word here, he says they did not repent of their sorceries. Now, when you hear the word sorceries, you may think of uh, something like witchcraft. And, and that, that, that's true, that is. But let me give you a little bit of history about this word. This is a Greek word from which we derive our English word pharmacy or pharmaceutical. It often refers to the use of mind and mood-altering drugs. This word is used to reference um, poisons and charms and seances and witchcraft and incantation and magic spells and contacting mediums as well, but it's most often used to reference the use of mind and mood-altering drugs. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but we have an incredible drug pandemic in America, in Western culture, all over the world. But... It's not anything new to humanity. For thousands of years, man has believed that, that these kind of drugs that, 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 that alter our mood and, and the way we think will, will induce a higher state of religious experience. It's believed that these kind of drugs will allow us to have a deeper communion with the deity. And so we seek this ecstasy, we seek this high with these various kinds of drugs, hoping that we might experience some God or the gods in a more personal and intimate manner. The only problem is the reality, those drugs don't allow us to do that. They don't allow us to experience God in a more 
intimate and deeper way. They lead us into the trap of satanic activities and worship. That's why God teaches us to avoid the use of mind and mood altering drugs to, to eliminate that from our life. In Galatians five, nineteen and twenty, here's what we read. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, and sorcery. Now, not just this whole idea of witchcraft, but the use of these mind and mood altering drugs that have been common for thousands of years. The drug may have changed, but the goal uh, remains the same. And so we're told to avoid those kinds of things. And then he goes on to say in, in the fourth uh, sin that he points out, he says they did not repent of their sexual immorality. That's a Greek word. The Greek word is pornea, from which our English word pornography is derived. It is a very general term used in Scripture, and, it, and it, it's used to refer to all sexual sins. Fornication, rape, adultery, promiscuity, incest, pedophilia, bestiality, homosexuality, pornography, any form of sexual intimacy outside of a marriage relationship between one man and one woman. This is the word that is used to describe those activities. If you want to see it, a detailed uh, explanation of God's boundaries for sexual intimacy, look closely at Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 20. It's a good place for you to start to find out what God says about human uh, sexual intimacy. So John uh, tells us that during these days there will be indescribable sexual perversions and they will be rampant. Again, it's hard for me to imagine that it'll be get, it'll get any worse than it is today, but obviously it will. And then we're told they did not repent of their theft. Honesty will be non-existent. People will steal from one another at will. It will be a, a, a time of unparalleled crime in human history. Again, no moral boundaries. Okay, it'll be a free fall for man to do whatever man's heart wants to do. So, what do we do with this, right? Well, look at me in your notes. Here's the first thing we just need to understand. Those whose hearts are hardened by sin will, will refuse to repent even when they're giving the most severe warning possible. And again, it, it's hard, it, it's just hard for me to understand that and to fathom that. But we just see the hardness of the human heart. We see the depth of human depravity on full display in these verses. But the second thing you and I need to take away is this. In light of this coming judgment, it is the responsibility of all believers to faithfully proclaim the gospel to unbelievers, praying they will surrender in faith to Jesus Christ. That's our responsibility in this, okay? God is a just God. He is a holy God. He is a righteous God. He is a loving God, and He is a gracious God. But He will judge sin and unbelief. And at the same time, we see the opportunity for men and women to repent. 
So you and I need to be faithful okay, in our sphere of influence to share the Gospel and invite men and women to say yes to Jesus Christ. So with the sixth trumpet, we're all but two-thirds of the way through um, the judgments of God. We, we have the seventh trumpet, which will reveal the seven bold judgments, and then we will see the finality of the end come to pass. Before we get there, though, there are a series of interludes we'll begin to study next week that lead into the bold judgment. I hope and pray that God is blessing you as we study through Revelation and He is grabbing hold of your heart and your mind as we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for our time together today. And Lord, I'm going to be really honest. This is a difficult passage to read. It's a difficult passage to study. It's a difficult passage to preach. It's a difficult passage to listen to. But yet, it is part of your word. It is truth. It is undeniable. It is authoritative. It is unchanging. And so, Lord God, even if we see and understand clearly from your word that you are going to judge the sin and the unbelief of the human race, would you, Lord God, allow us to be salt and light? Would you give us the opportunity? Would you open doors for us, Lord, to share the good news of Christ and invite men and women into your kingdom to be a part of your family? Heavenly Father, give us boldness and courage in that endeavor. Lord God, I thank you for grace and mercy. Because the reality is none of us deserve heaven. Every single one of us deserves condemnation. And yet, by grace and mercy, motivated by your unconditional love for us, you have made a way for us to find forgiveness of sin and eternal life. You have made a way for us to be rescued from darkness and redeemed from sin and adopted into your family. And Lord, we rejoice in that and we thank you for that. And there are no words to express our gratitude for saving and redeeming us, Lord. Now, Father God, we ask and pray that you'd use us and that you would use us for your glory and for your honor, as your messengers, as your ambassadors of hope and grace to a lost and a dying world. Lord Jesus, move and work among us in ways that only you can. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.